of Happy Valley, Oregon. Welcome to Until We Meet Again, brought to you by the kind support of Cornerstone Funeral Services in Boring, Oregon, and friends like you. I'm Elizabeth Fournier. This radio broadcast is an expression of our common ground and mortality, because after all, we are all in this together. Today's reading is Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take a hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. My guest today is Dr. Shane J. Wood. Now, he gave me permission just to refer to him as Shane, so we'll see how that goes. He's the professor of the New Testament Studies and Associate Academic Dean at Ozark Christian College, and he's also the author of the new book, Between Two Trees. So, Shane, I read that you just went to an... an, 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 uh, (laughs) I'm so excited, I can't get the word out. I, I just read that you went to the Enneagram conference. Now, I'm a fan. I am a self-diagnosed healthy four with the wing of a three. How about you? Okay. Uh, I identify as a one, and I'm hopefully striving towards health. So, <laughs> <laughs> There's a difference, isn't there? There's, so there why really don't we explain is. maybe a little bit what Enneagram is, and there is a difference between levels of health and sort of working through lots of stuff. Yeah, Enneagram is this, uh, it's this incredible ancient methodology, really, a tool of, uh, it's kind of an entry point to self-awareness. And um, each of the numbers is kind of our unique ways in which we are uh, responding to our loss of love. Um, it's our way of responding to the brokenness that we have received. Um, and it's our way of coping. And so when the more you understand your number, the more you understand your entry point really to healing um, and so I've, I've found it deeply transformational in my own life, um, uh, working with, you know, uh, the, not just the methodology, but obviously inviting the spirit into the process. And so um, I find it to be wonderful in discipleship settings as well. Yeah, I think it's a cool design. There's a set of nine distinct personality types, and there's nine numbers that we go through, and they denote one type. And it's really common to find a little of yourself in all nine. That's why there's a wing of this or that. And I think that when people do take the test and they do read the, the basic personality types, you really sort of see what dominates who you are. And I wonder if that's something that's a sort of a prenatal factor inborn um, that determines our main type or if we sort of develop as we go. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of real uh, debate on that, truthfully, within the Enneagram study. And frankly, even when we pull in, you know, behavioral science and developmental psychology uh, my own personal sense is that um, we, we are born more fluid. Um, and as we experience wounds and as we experience brokenness, uh, we start to kind of calcify into a certain set of coping mechanisms, which becomes our number. Um, our number is, is a measurement of brokenness. <laughs> it, is, it is our unique way we were broken, and it's our unique way that we can actually enter into healing. Um, yeah, so I've, I, again, I, I, can't, I can't say enough how much it's helped me and my, and my family and even just being a husband and a dad and 
So I, I, I highly recommend it. I agree, too. Um, just so people know how to spell this in case you want to look this up, E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. And when I spoke before about being healthy and non-healthy, when I first learned about this, I was an unhealthy four. And I would say that's the equivalent of somebody who's maybe melancholy. You um, wear French berets and smoke cigarettes and look longingly <laughs> out windows with sad poetry. Something like that. Right. That's really right. what we have for a broken three. And then I'm also, I wouldn't say I'm a narcissist, but darn it, I like to perform. So that gives me sort of the wing of the three. And I thought, okay, okay, I really need to sort of look at that and realize where I can fix things. You could really be a huge narcissist and a look at me, look at me selfish person if you're this unhealthy three. Also, the four is someone who's sort of a victim and everything is kind of uh, upon you. And that's, I guess that's that's my immature in, in the Enneagram study point of view. But now I find I'm still a sensitive, sweet gal, but I've got it together yeah. a little bit more. So that puts me more at the levels of, I don't even want to say normalcy, but the levels of health. So I like how you say this does help you in your life become a better human being because it really is a mirror held up to you that really reflects yeah. back to you who you are yeah it's it and a lot of the enneagram teaching is is about is around the concept of it's 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 waking up as a matter of fact i summarize um uh, the enneagram with uh, with a passage from ephesians 5 you know wake up O sleeper rise from the dead and let the light of christ shine on you and that that is the journey of the Enneagram. It's to, to wake up to the brokenness that the mechanisms have done such a good job to help us survive, but they're also the very thing, same thing that if we keep doing them, they will destroy us. And so the first step of the Enneagram is just becoming self-aware, waking up and realizing that there are actual patterns uh, that, that, are, that are discernible in the ways in which we navigate uh, our brokenness and, frankly, a broken world. Oh, yeah, broken world. That definitely, definitely. And how do you find that you keep your spiritual path together in a broken world? And amongst, I imagine college kids are people between the ages of maybe 18, early 20s, and people I know go back to college, but that's sort of a broken time in our life. So yeah. how does your spiritual path stay mended? Yeah, no, that's a that's a wonderful question, and one I'm actually quite passionate about. Um, I do work here at Ozark with uh, 18 to 22 year olds a lot. I also preach at a local church, so I get I get to deal really with the spectrum of uh, people that are kind of still struggling with their identity and dealing with some of the wounds that they've accumulated from their home life, which typically um, it seems to be increasingly more common for the students that come here to have severely broken homes. Um, but, but with me personally, and this is what I teach my students all the time that are training for ministry, as I tell them, listen, you, you can only take someone as far as you yourself have gone. And so for me, it's, it's the, the inner work is so important, dealing with our wounds, uh, practicing um, the difficult path of vulnerability, uh, bringing, bringing everything out into the open, because I believe that the more we keep things in the darkness, uh, the more difficult it will be for the light to actually shine on it. So, so in my own personal life, it, it is like, I mean, I go through uh, pretty regular, you know, rounds of counseling. Um, I do a lot of uh, work with uh, spiritual directors. I do, uh, I, I spend a significant amount of time and, and uh, meditating and reflecting and even journaling on um, my own brokenness. Because, because it's interesting, it's, it's like we have the two greatest commandments, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Matthew's Gospel says, and the second is like the first which always confused me because I'm like, what's, 
what's like loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? But then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so, so what's fascinating about that is it almost sets up an equation that if we don't know how to love ourselves, we will not know how to love our neighbor. And if we don't know how to love our neighbor, then we're going to have a disconnect in loving the Lord our God with all that we are. So, so for me, the, the path of spiritual development and inner work is learning how to show compassion to myself by being brutally honest with who I am. <laughs> Hard to do sometimes, right? Because like Very that mirror so. being held up to you, we don't want to see the yucky stuff. Yeah. Extra- extraordinarily uncomfortable. Yeah. But necessary. Shane, do you, do, you, do you view writing as a kind of a spiritual practice? Absolutely. Um, as a matter of fact, the, the, the new book, Between Two Trees, uh, which the subtitle, Our Transformation from Death to Life, it, it carries a lot of my heart in that. But I, I wrote the whole thing as kind of a spiritual exercise. I, I did not uh, really, it was not a linear writing. I didn't say, you know, chapter one. And then I, what I would do is I was actually spending a lot of time up in the Northeast in Providence, Rhode Island. And um, for about three weeks, I would walk and find a coffee shop or a library and sit down and have a passage at the top of the paper or a quote. And then I would actually close my eyes and just, just uh, explore, just pray, and allow it to be something that, um, that both I'm unearthing, but really that the Spirit's unearthing in me. And then, and then I wove it together into the book that, that is now out. But yeah, very much so. Why were you called to write about restoring Eden? Ooh. Um, because it's really... Uh, it, it, it's really uh, my journey over the last three years. Um, the, book, the book is very, very vulnerable in parts. It's, it's kind of this, um, almost kind of in the vein of like an Augustine's Confessions, where I am dealing with theological issues, but I'm dealing with it really from out of my journal. <laughs> um, in, my, in my own life, dealing like in Chapter 7, I talk about um, being a sexual abuse victim and the way in which God has, um, that, that has actually caused distance between me and the Lord. Uh, but, but then also how, how God has bridged that gap through not only the acts of Christ, but through the, the movements towards us, which is my definition of grace, um, a, movement, a movement of God towards us. Um, and so I, I, I really have found myself, especially growing up kind of in the evangelical church, um, I found myself discontented with a lot of what we talked about as far as salvation. Uh, we were always pointing towards the next Eden. Um, you know, it's kind of that, you know, the pie in the sky, by and by. But, but the problem is, is that the brokenness that we feel between Eden at the end of the Bible and Eden at the beginning of the Bible, and that's where the, the title comes from, we're caught in this world between two trees, and it is difficult. And so, um, really, what, what, what led me to, to do this was, was my own unearthing, was my own wrestling, saying, I, I, I'm struggling to navigate this world between two trees, and I want to know, know if I'm um, reflecting on it accurately. And that's really where the, the impetus of the book and the writing of it began. I was really impressed by your writing style, because you're a professor, you're also a doctor, you have lots of education, and you are an educator, being out there doing what you're doing, and, you know, ministry things and church and all that. But you talk real humbly, you lived in an apartment, you were a latchkey kid, you talk from a way that people can relate to you. And again, you're really honest and open. So did you find when you were writing this, did you think, oh, I'm sharing too much, I should tone it back? Or did you just find that God opened your heart? And there it was. 
Yeah, no, I, you know, um, being a being a being a minister in a church and in academia, um, I, I, I kind of just get bored with the lack of vulnerability. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's there, there's sometimes like I struggle with the veneer. I struggle with the the happy happy plastic smiles. You know, hey, how you doing, brother? Doing great. And in reality, their families, are, you know, their their marriage is falling apart. And so for me, it was this saying like I I just I want more. Um, and I and I truly believe that that if if you really want change, the first best and the only place you can really look to is to change yourself. And so I, I decided I'm, I'm going to, number one, write uh, as open as I can be, as raw as I can. And then the editing process, I was committed to not editing out that vulnerability because I, I believe that we all long to be um, honest about the difficulties of what's around us, from abuses to racism to you know, sexual identity issues, which this book addresses, uh, but more through a, through a lens of of what is God doing, and what, why do we do those things, and what is God doing to overcome the things that continue to break us? So for me, it was I'm just I'm kind of tired of us not being vulnerable, because I think it's our lack of vulnerability that is that is hurting people, hurting families, and hurting the church. Well, that definitely speaks to your theme because I see it over and over again through the book that idea of walking on a path to transformation, mm-hmm. and it's there. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that even the way you just said that, um, yeah, definitely is a part of what came out, what I learned from writing the book. It's, it's a reminder that, that it, a lot of the times we're looking so much for a destination, looking for so much for the end, that we actually forget that the, the beauty is in the process itself. It's in the process of walking in the journey and, and allowing the unearthing to not be something that we, um, sh- you know, shiver away from or that we shrink away from, but but actually we embrace it as a as painful, definitely painful, uh, but a pain more akin to a having a surgery and then recovering from it, knowing that life on the other side of the pain is going to be um, far more, far more livable. What can you tell us about embracing death, the fine life? Hmm. Yeah, and, the, and that kind of was um, a part of the theme, especially the first half of the book, um, the first half of the book, I, I wrestle with the question, what, what in the world happened in Eden? Uh, because I feel like that we've kind of abbreviated uh, what it is that has happened. Typically, when we talk about sin, or, you know, or even in the context of death, it's, it's usually something along the lines of, well, we broke a rule, and therefore God's punishing us for it. And, and, I, and I'm not even saying that that's not true. That's why um, the word abbreviated is, is kind of how I've been articulating it recently, because abbreviation, it summarizes, it just doesn't give you the whole story. Um, and so what, what I began to realize is that union is a major theme, uh, both describing what it is that is broken and what it is that God's looking to restore. Um, and what happened in Eden was not merely breaking a rule, it was actually us becoming one flesh with death. It was union. Um, and because of that, this is where the like chapters four and five we we speak the grammar of death. We think like death. we we this is why um the things that seem more fun are the things that usually are more destructive. Um, this is why we usually trend towards impatience, why we trend towards violence as solutions for our problems it's because that's the grammar of death uh, that that we will actually uh, seek the things of death because we've become one with death. But, but, but the beauty is, is that, that when Christ came, 
he became incarnate, and then he also united with death at the cross, it repurposes that union of death for union with God. And so now, this is this for me, this kind of all started putting into place why, why the Christian message doesn't say, and now as a Christian, you, you, you get to bypass death. No, actually, because of Christ's death and resurrection, the union that at one point used to separate us from God is now the entry point to union with God. And the more that we practice dying in the present, and the more that we can actually even look to the end of our lives as not a, um, a, a breaking point or a final point, but actually a, a unifying point where we can become one with the very one that has been seeking us through his Holy Spirit and through Christ himself. My guest today is Dr. Shane J. Wood. He's the professor of New Testament Studies and Associate Academic Dean at Ozark Christian College. We're discussing his new book, Between Two Trees, Our Transformation from Death to Life. I have to tell you, Shane, this cover, this book, it's sumptuous. The green, I'm a huge fan of green, but the, the shade of green, the, you nailed it. How did you come up with this cover design? What spoke to you? The whole, yeah. I mean, it's not only is it just green, but it's actually just a lovely, lovely shade, if I don't say so myself. What are your thoughts? Well, well good. I'm really glad that you like that. We, uh, the, the publisher actually had sent me about eight to ten different covers and I was like, listen, I, I don't want to be a diva at all. I was like, but I, I just wasn't feeling it. They were like a lot of pastel colors. And so we, we kept looking. And finally, I, I, they said, well, kind of describe what it is. And I said, I want it to be, um, communicate, you know, an, an invitation. Mm. I want it to communicate also a beauty. Because I think there is beauty in this world between two trees. But then I also wanted it to communicate abundance. And that's where that shade of green for me is this. there's a peaceful quality to it that also is whenever, you know, whenever spring comes, everything starts to get the shade of green. So, so really the, the, what I was hoping for um, the cover to communicate was a contemplative aspect, but one that also instills hope. Um, And I think that, I think they did a fantastic job of nailing it with it. They really did. Uh, Between everything you do academically and ministerially, and writing, and talking to me today. How do you do this with a wife and four kids? Oh, man, yes. You know, one of the things that's fascinating about that is um, uh, my, my wife has all kinds of her own little projects, too, that she, that she does, you know, and so uh, we, we committed very early on, uh, accidentally, but it's, but it's benefited our marriage for almost 17 years now that um, my job is to make uh, whatever my wife's calling or her dreams are, it's my responsibility to fight for those. And then whatever my calling and responsibility is, uh, she's taken it on to fight for that. And so truthfully, it's, um, it's, you know, it's like with my doctoral work. It was actually done in Scotland, and so we had to move over there as a family at the time of five. Mm. And I, I said no, and my wife was like, no, we're going. So she put the house up for sale and... And then she, we moved over there, and um, it's, it's a family effort. And at any point, we feel like that any of our pursuits are costing our family more than we're willing to spend. We, we pull the, we're willing to pull the plug on it. But um, I, I just um, have a wonderful wife that, that seeks the Lord, and we do it together so that we can help each other's callings come to fruition. I love that. I think that that's a really important piece for listeners to hear. And that reminds me of a woman who I heard on an interview once who talked about writing as her blue flame. And she was saying that she had six children 
and okay. she was the primarily primary person who took care of them. She also had a bit of a radio show and her concept was her blue flame is writing and researching and her spiritual journaling. And it gave her the blue flame concept, Shane, is it gives you that it's kind of like your God given gift, but it also feeds you and gives you what yeah. you need. And it sort of sounds like that when you're talking about that, that not only are you both going to support each other, but you know, which ultimately God gives you what works for you, where you can feel the love tank. Therefore you can give love and support more to others. And it's not the, it's not a hindrance to you. The fact that there's four kids at home, but you go off during the day, you're at a school, you are talking to somebody. I mean, it's bedtime probably for little people right now. And here you are on the radio and it's okay because Again, this is just really, it's, it's adding to your home rather than detracting from it. Absolutely. And that's where, you know, it's like I, uh, it's, whenever I say like a PhD is a family degree, what I was, what I usually tell them with the people that I'm talking to is I'm like, now listen, what I don't mean is to say that it serves your family directly. What I do mean is that, that if you're going to pursue things like this, all the family has to come together and agree on it. Um, and my and my kids are very well aware. We we try not to give them more information than what their little shoulders can handle, but they're also very aware of of where we're at as a family. Um, and and for me again, that's just the practice of vulnerability, um, as both a a spouse but also of as a parent. And I and I find it to be not just refreshing, but it's rewarding because then every milestone um, becomes a family celebration because we did it together. So you had five of you in Scotland. You come back to yep. the U.S. I'm thinking I'm getting this correct. You come back here, and then you realize that your heart and your life and your home has room for one more. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually, uh, I think, I can't remember what chapter it is, but it's early in the book. We, I, I, I share about um, the addition of, of our, the sixth person of our family, our, my young son, Robert, who's actually named after my mentor that passed away several years ago. Uh, but yeah, we adopted Robert from the Grenadine Islands, from St. Vincent, and so uh, that that in and of itself was an incredible journey. But uh, one of the things I point out in the book is that um, it it actually uncovered uh, some latent racism inside of my family that I didn't even realize existed uh, with my, especially on my my grandma's side. And so uh, Robert has been this incredible mirror that's both shown us the best of ourselves and the worst of ourselves. Uh, and yet he does everything he does with an absolute smile. Uh, but yes, it was, we, we have grown both conventionally and unconventionally, and every one of them have been their own unique journeys and adventures. That's a nice way to say that. I like it. And you, they're all really kind of walking a spiritual practice and walking transformation and just trying to figure out their place in the world. And there's <laughs> you and your wife to guide them right along, huh? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> nice. So don't be shy about this, but you have some really awesome honors in your life here. The Christian Standard has le- has listed you as one of the 40 leaders under 40. Also, you've been recognized by Theology Degrees Online as one of the 100 remarkable professors and scholars and theology students that you should know about. Um, that's pretty cool. Does that make you stand any taller or look at yourself differently in the mirror in the morning? Well, it, um, you know, if anything, it made me stop and go, uh, boy, the word expert doesn't mean as much as I thought it did. I mean, I think that's kind of oh, how I, I mean, but I, I, what I appreciate about it is, um, 
is is just a, a a recognition to continue to look around and see who it is that we have as as partners in the kingdom to keep moving the message forward. I mean, uh, the, you know, the, really, honestly, the kingdoms kind of fell on a, some pretty rough PR uh, times, and so I, I I feel like that those types of honors, if anything. Uh, they're reminders that, that there are um, a ton of us that are working really hard together to advance God's kingdom in very unique ways. So I appreciate it, honestly, just to even be um, next to anybody on that list. But it, for me, it was an encouragement to say, I'm not alone. Uh, let's continue to fight and, and figure out how to storm the gates of hell. Yeah, we are all in this together, after all. Yeah. I like it very much. All right. Can you think back? This is just kind of a left-wing question here. Not left-wing, out of left field. Let's just make it clear what I'm trying to say here. Can you think of the very first book that made you cry? Oh, goodness. That is wonderful. Um, You know, I can think of three off the top of my head. I don't know if any of them are the first, though. That's my The the three that come off the top of my head is uh, Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. Uh, which it's a it's a fictional writing about um, a, a an older minister that's that's actually has a seven year old son and he's writing to his son about life and it, it was deeply moving for me. Um, one of my favorite books of all time is George MacDonald's Lilith, uh, and and he's he actually is uh, was a big influence on C.S. Lewis. Um, as a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis wrote and said. Uh, there's not a single word I've ever written that wasn't influenced by George MacDonald. And that Lilith is a fictional work as well, but it is it is powerful and definitely moved me to tears. And the other one, honestly, would be um, uh, The uh, Paradise Lost by John Milton, the 1667 classic. That, that it's, it's written in a much different style, much more of the kind of um, Virgil's Aeneid, you know, the... Uh, uh, the kind of poetic uh, line, Dante's Inferno has a, has a similar feel. But man, whenever, and I, I think I actually include this in the book, uh, whenever Eve sinks her teeth into, into the fruit, the way he describes poetically, it's, it's deeply moving, deeply moving. What do you have either on your wall in your office or on your desk that serves as inspiration or comfort for you on a daily basis? Yeah, on on my on my wall. I'm actually turning around to look at it right now as I say this. On my wall in my office, um, it's a it's a replica of Caravaggio's painting called The Incredulity of Saint Thomas. Um, and if if you the the it's worth a Google. The Incredulity of Saint Thomas. That's a fancy word. Uh, How do we spell that? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I N C R E D U L I. T Y incredulity, and and what I love about the painting um, is is Thomas is is actually flanked by two other disciples, and Jesus is standing there in his resurrected state, and Jesus's robe is being held back by his hand, and you can see the wound in the side where the spear went into it, and Thomas uh, is has his hand reached out, and Jesus is guiding his finger into the side of his of his wound. Um, and that's actually on my on my wall as a reminder that we are our wounds, because this was one of the most broken moments for Thomas. I mean, he he had doubted Christ and said, I will not believe until I can put my finger in his hands and in the wounds in his side. And in this moment, it's it's an expression of Thomas's greatest wound is healed by entering into the wounds of Christ. 
Um, and so really that, that picture, that painting was on my mind a lot as I was exploring um, and writing this book. It, it's, a, it's a constant reminder of the way in which Christ heals my own wounds. You've been listening to KKPZ, 1330 AM, The Truth. Thank you so much to my guest, Shane J. Wood. He's the author of Between Two Trees, Our Transformation to Death to Life. He also serves as a teaching minister, and he offers free lectures, sermons, and unique Bible study opportunities at www.shanejwood.com. Until we meet again next week, be excellent to each other.